Well, in uh, Matthew chapter 21, you don't need to turn there, but there's a story that Jesus tells, and it's about two brothers. And it's, it's a conversation that I feel like could happen between any father and his sons, where he looks at them and says, I need you to go out and work in the vineyard. And the first son says, no, I'm, I'm not going to help you. And then he gives it some thought, and later he decides to go and actually do what his father asked him to do and goes and helps him. And the second son is like, sure, Dad, I'm right on it. I'm, I'll, I'll be right there, and then never shows up, never goes to work. And Jesus, here's this story, and he's, he's telling this story, and the group around him is kind of wondering, where, where's he going with this? And he says, which one did the will of the Father? Which one enacted what the Father asked? And I'm like, well, the one who said no, but then went and did it, that's the one, because he actually participated. And Jesus is like, you're right, that's true. Like, that's, that's good. Because a, a lot of you that were surrounding him at that time and who he was talking to uh, were ones who were kind of in from the jump and they were saying they were following him, but their actions weren't necessarily lining up. And Jesus was like, listen, John the Baptist came and he was proclaiming that there's a new way of righteousness and there's a new way forward. And, and a lot of you haven't been listening, but the, the tax collectors and the, the less thans and those who are seen as far out of reach and, and not of social, like good social standing, they're the ones that are listening and they're turning. And while maybe they said no to me at first, they're now saying yes and they're changing their hearts towards me. And their actions are now lining up with that as they're following after me. And and everyone listening to that would have been a little bit offended. But what Jesus was getting at is that when you believe something, your actions should follow that. When When you believe something to be true, that should come out in the way in which you live. There was a man by the name of Charles Blondin And he was a great tightrope walker in the 1800s. And his big claim to fame was that he could traverse Niagara Falls. And he would do this all the time. He'd go back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, that's not that impressive. And so he's like, well, actually, let me do you one better. And what he would do is while he would go out there, he'd bring stuff with him and he'd have a meal. At one point, he fashioned a stove that he could take out with him as he was balancing over the water at 160 feet of height with the raging kind of churning swirl below him. And he would cook an omelet while he was out in the middle of it, and he would eat it while everyone was watching, and then he'd slowly come back. Kind of a weird way to have breakfast, but, you know, it worked for him. And so he would do this. And so one day the crowds were big, presidents would come to see him, it was, it was a big deal. And one day he came back in, and as he came back in and stood on the edge, people were cheering for him, and they're like, and he's like, do you believe that I can go back and do it again? Everyone's like, yes. He's like, do you think I could do it with someone on my back? And everyone's like, yes. And he's like, do any of you want to get on my back? And everyone went quiet, right? Like no one wanted to do that, because that's, a, that's another level. Right? To, to say, like, oh, no, I think he can do that. And I think, you know, I'll volunteer my neighbor over here and they can go with you. But for you to step in and say, oh, I'll, I'll hold on and I'll go, that's a whole different conversation. That's, that's putting your faith and your belief in somebody at a whole different level. And where we find ourselves this morning is in the second half of the book of James, or the second half of chapter 2, which talks around this very thing. James is very concerned that the things that we say, we match with how we live. He, he, he wants this congruence of life, that what you proclaim with your mouth, you're going to back up with how you live. See, last week, Pastor Dane walked us through this message around partiality and discrimination and, and prejudice that we can c- carry with people and how we're to view everyone in the image of God and, and through the mercy of, of God. And if you didn't listen to that message, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It was a great message. 
But James is weaving this thought of this is how we're to treat people. And now he comes to this point where he's like, if you really believe this, it's going to show up in your life. It's going to show up in how you act. It's going to show up in how you treat the other. And so turn with me to James chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 14, because James is going to talk to us around this idea of faith and works, and he's going to push on this idea that a a workless faith is is a worthless faith. And so we pick up in verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? See, this is a space where many early theologians and church uh, fathers had an issue with James because he starts talking around this idea, can, can a workless faith save? And the, the concern was, for many, was that language starts to sound a little bit like you're trying to earn something, like you're just trying to go through a checklist and like, I'm just going to be good and I'll, I'll be a good moral citizen and that's going to earn my way uh, with God and that's going to be okay. The Apostle Paul talked around this very thing with Jewish Christians. They were trying just to follow the law. And he's like, it's not about that. Yes, you want to be good and you want to follow God, but that doesn't earn anything. It's by grace that you've been saved. And so the Apostle Paul would speak to this very tension that people would feel. Martin Luther, one of the early church reformers, the Protestant reformer, he had a lot of issues with the book of James. Because he thought it talked too much about works and and kind of earning your way of salvation. He was like, no, it's by faith alone. It's by the grace of God. And what we find here is that James isn't saying anything different than Martin Luther was saying. He's not saying anything different than the Apostle Paul was saying. Because the way James is using this word works is not in the way of, I need to just go through a checklist. But it's probably better to say that James is saying these are the actions that should follow your faith, that there should be a consistency in your life. And the way our faith works and the way we work out our faith is by following the royal law. Now, that sounds funny, but that's language that James has already used in this letter. And verse 8 of chapter 2, he's talked around fulfilling the royal law. And what he's saying there is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith, your trust in Jesus, then you're going to follow the royal decree of your king. And his royal decree was that you love God and you love others. That should work out in your faith. That should show up in your life and how you treat others and how you follow after God. But we must first put our faith in Jesus. I had a professor at Biola who hammered this into my head over and over again. He said that faith is trusting in the right object for the right reason. Faith is trusting in the right object for the right reason. And the example that he would always give in this and that he would always point to was a chair. He said, you you place a lot of trust and faith in a chair. You're all doing it this morning, right? Like you sat down assuming that chair was going to hold you. What you didn't know is I sabotaged one chair in here, and I'm just waiting for it to fall. So it's going to be a fun little thing we can watch later. But when you look at a chair, you go, okay, uh, that looks like it can hold me. You, you, you stand up aside and you go, okay, that, that looks like I can rest in that. But you can also look at a chair from afar and never sit in it. You can kind of analyze it. You can know all about it. You can know, oh, yeah, that looks like that could, that could hold somebody really well, but, but never actually trust it. See, this is what Blondin experienced when he said, does anyone want to jump on my back with me and come across the Niagara Falls? 
No, no one wanted to do that because they were afraid. While they believed that he could hold them, they didn't fully trust them and their actions kind of betrayed what they were proclaiming they believed. See, but what Jesus is calling us to and what James is reminding us of here is that if we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then our lives should be lived in such a way that we rest in him. That we come and we, we fully trust that when we sit with him, that he can hold us, that he has the strength to sustain us, that even when everything seems unstable around us, he's unwavering and that he has us. And when we trust in that and we fully sit and let go of our own striving within that, then our lives should be transformed in how we live them out of that truth, out of that faith in him. Because what James is pointing us to is that a faith that works, a working faith is, is faith that works itself out by loving God and loving others. And so he continues on in verse 15. He says this, he gives us an example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the needs needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is using some strong language here. He's saying faith without works is is dead. And he gives this example that everyone would have understood. If you ever see somebody in need and your response to them is just, hey, go in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do nothing to address that and keep walking, what have you really accomplished in that moment? Nothing. You've just continued on your own way. I was convicted of this earlier this week. Uh, My kids and I were driving home, and we were driving up our hill when all of a sudden this little dog jumped in the middle of the road. It was a little pug, and he just stopped, like right in the middle of the road, like, hit me, you know, just sitting there. And so we we stopped, and like I hit the horn and didn't do anything. Like my, my son's calling out one window, I'm calling out the other one, and dog's not going anywhere. It's just like fascinated, like headlights, just stuck, right? And so I get out of the car, and I walk over, and I'm like, come here, come with me, you know. So the dog like moves over to the side. Meanwhile, there's another car behind us that's now figuring out like why I'm just stopped, because they were like, what are you doing? And then they see the dog. They're like, oh. So I move the dog over, and the dog kind of goes over there. We get back in the car. We start to drive away. And I'm watching in the rearview mirror as the second we leave, the dog just goes whoosh, right in front of the next car, just like, we get to do it again. We get to do it again, you know? So I just backed up over the dog so that the guy could get around him. I didn't, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. I'll tell you what. Our church loves dogs because I joked three times about hitting that dog, and, and no one really laughed because they're like, that's not, that's not funny. And I, I didn't. We didn't hit the dog. But here's where my mind went, okay? And maybe this is revealing too much. We're like driving away and I'm like looking and I'm like, man, that, that dog, it's, it's, it's going to get hit. Like someone's going to peel around that corner and it's going to get hit. And then I started to like having this like sorrowful, mo- I'm like, that dog's going to get hit. And then I thought, what, what if that dog is someone in our church? What if I see them on Sunday and they're like, my dog died this week. It got hit by a car. And I was like, I could have saved that dog. I could have taken it home. I could, and then I thought, why does it matter if it's someone from my church? Anyone would be sad if their dog got hit by a car. I should have done something, right? I started going down this trail of like, there was a need that I could have stepped into. And instead I was just like, well, let's just get home, right? But this is what we do all the time. And James is saying, listen, don't just do the, the nice thing. I'm like, oh, that seems really hard. And then keep moving on. You, you don't know if, if maybe you're the very person that is to step into this moment. Maybe you are the very answer to the prayer that this person coming with their need has been searching for. 
I love how Craig Blomberg and, and Miriam Kamel say this. They say, go in peace. This is what James is saying here. Go in peace takes the form of a prayer and a benediction. These Christians are actually praying that God will meet the needs of his people, disclosing their correct trust in God as provider. This is a good thing. He's saying, go in peace, be warm and filled. We're praying for you. But they refuse to recognize that their involvement in the process is the way God wants to meet those needs. James is reminding us that, while yes, we want to say go in peace. We want to pray for people when tragedy strikes. We also want to pray in such a way that as we're praying for those needs to be met, that if God stirs in us, that we step forward to meet those needs that are in front of us. It's an active faith. It's not one that just watches or waits for somebody else to step in and take care of it. But maybe God is using you in that moment to step in and do something about the very need you see in front of you. So James is saying, this is what it looks like for faith and works to live in concert together. Verse 18, he continues on. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is continuing in this kind of imaginary dialogue back and forth between someone who's questioning whether or not you really need works in in order to have faith. And he's saying, some will say, you know, I'm content over here. I just have a lot of faith. And others are like, no, no, I'm really content in my works and my actions and what I'm doing. And what James is saying is, show me faith apart from works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. I'm going to show you my faith and what I believe by my actions, how I live, what my life looks like. And so James is, again, he's pointing us to this, this idea that our faith is seen in how we live. Now, again, I know that could sound like we're trying to earn it. That's not what he's saying in this moment. He's not saying earn this. He's saying live out of your faith. Live out of your trust in Jesus and step into the moments and the opportunities that are in front of you. If we're going to believe and proclaim that Jesus is king, then we need to fall under his rule and reign and step into his royal decree, his instructions, his law, and live that out by loving God and loving others. If I was to to tell you that I was a vegetarian, I'm not, I love meat, but if I was to tell you I was a vegetarian and and begin to explain all the reasons why it was so good for you, I mean, just the the clarity of my skin, the clarity of my mind and thinking, and and just I don't have to harm animals, and all those great things, and went on and on and on and on, and I said, "Uh, but I want to have you over for dinner, and you came over, and I cooked you tri-tip, right? You'd be a little confused, right? If I said I was a vegetarian, and then I served you meat, you'd probably wonder, what's really going on here? This is what James is pushing us towards, that there's not this disconnect between our faith and what we believe and how we live. He's saying those have to match. And so when people look at our lives, there shouldn't be too much of a question of what we value or what matters to us. That should come out in the way that we live. That's what James continues to drive us at. He's also telling us in this moment, you can have all the right answers. You can step back and be like, Jesus is a chair that you can trust in. You can sit in. He will hold you. But you can be sitting in another chair of your own making while doing that, saying, no, no, you should really trust in that chair without ever fully embracing him yourself. James is saying, don't fall in that failure where you just have this intellectual faith. Our minds are a gift from God and we should search the scriptures and we, we should read well and we should study things and that's great, but we can't just let it live in our head. It has to translate to our hearts. It has to move us. 
And what James reminds us here in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, James is not holding any punches here. He's getting after it. But he's saying here that even if you believe God is one, that's great. The demons believe that too. Now, what are you going to do with that? How's that going to transform you? Because the belief that God is one is one that was central. It's central to us still. It comes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a prayer that was said three times a day. He's saying that's great that you believe that, but how does that actually shape who you are? How does your faith translate into your life? Because the demons even trust that, that God is one. And so what does that mean for you? You foolish person. And again, not mincing words. That word foolish there means empty, hollow, devoid of meaning. So he's saying, you foolish, empty, hollow, devoid of meaning person. I'll show you how worthless faith is without works. And then he gives us two examples of what faith being worked out looks like. Faith in action works like. And he uses the examples of Abraham and Rahab. He kind of grabs two extremes here. Abraham is like Father Abraham. We know Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? I was just waiting, waiting for someone to start with it. And if you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, well, then you're missing out on a great song, let me tell you. Super catchy, super catchy song. But he uses this example of the patriarch, Father Abraham. And then he uses this example of Rahab, a woman of ill repute, a woman who was abused and treated terribly and, and, and seen as less than. He uses these two people as his example of faith and acting things very different, trusting in God and allowing their lives to match with what they are trusting in God for. Verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. The example of Abraham that we get, and we, we remember this story from Genesis 21, that God had promised Abraham would be the father of nations, that he would bless him, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But the problem was that Abraham was old and his wife was old and they had no kids. So they tried to figure out a way that they could make that happen. And so Sarah was like, here's my, my maidservant. And so we'll go that route. And they're like, well, we're not, that's not going to be it. And God's like, no, I've got a better plan. Sarah, you're just going to have a son. And his name's Isaac. And he's going to be the, the promised one that I told you was to come. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son up to the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him. I mean, it's still one of those stories that when you read it, you just kind of pause and you're like, What's the angle here? Like, what's God doing? Like, what, what is this all about? This very promise that God had made to Abraham, he's fulfilled in his son Isaac, and now Abraham is taking the promise of God, and he's marching up the hill with him. They've got the wood, and they're going up, and they're going to make the sacrifice. Isaac knows what's happening. He's like, Dad, where's the ram? Right? He's like, God will provide, son. And they get up to the top, and they place the wood, and he's getting everything all set. He places his son atop the wood. He's ready to go, and God says, Stop, for I trust that you fear me above all others, that your faith in me 
has been proven by your actions that you are willing to do whatever is necessary. We still, we wrestle with that concept, but we see a changed man in Abraham after this moment. Because we even see before that, when he was leaving with his son to go up the mountain, he tells his servants, we'll be back. That's the language he uses. We'll be back. When, Ab- when Isaac is like, dad, where's the ram? He's like, son, God will provide. Throughout it, he's showing faith that you are the, the, the son of promise that God has provided for me. I'm trusting that he is going to do something miraculous in this moment. And I don't understand what's happening, but I'm going to continue forward with him. And his faith, his trust in God, he sat there and said, I, I know you're secure and I'm going to trust you in all things, even in the hard. And so we see that this was credited to Abraham as righteousness because his actions backed up his faith. Now, the second story we pick up in verse 24, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone, that they have to be working in concert together. Verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? See, this is a different story entirely than the story of Abraham, but but Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, and God was coming to destroy the city of Jericho. He, he sent spies. He had Joshua send two spies to go into the city. And they w- wandered around. And they found themselves in Rahab's house, which we have a lot of questions as to how did they get into Rahab's house, knowing the profession that she had. But that's a different conversation. And so they're there. They're there. And they have this conversation with her. And while they're there, the king of Jericho finds out that the spies are somewhere to be found. And they start searching house to house to figure out what is going on here. And Rahab, in a moment of clarity and in a moment of faith, chooses to hide the spies. Was it because she was being nice to these guys? No. In Joshua 2, she makes it very clear why she's doing this. She says, for the Lord, she's speaking to the two men. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She's proclaiming that she's heard these rumblings, these rumors of this God who's coming and his people who are coming and they they were freed from Egypt by God's miraculous workings. And she's like, "I I went in with the Lord your God. I trust in him above anything else I'm experiencing now. And so what does she do in that very moment? How does she back up her faith? She puts her life on the line by rescuing and hiding these two spies. Had it been discovered that they were in her house, she would have been dead immediately. They wouldn't have given it a second thought, and yet she trusted that God was worth it, and she put her life in his hands by rescuing these spies, showing incredible faith and and showing the concert of faith leading to action, to works in our lives. Her faith was working itself out by loving God, and in that moment, she loved those two spies well, hiding them and protecting their lives. And then we conclude this section in verse 26. It says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James keeps pushing on this idea. A living faith, a faith that works, it's going to work itself out by actively and increasingly loving God and loving others. But a, a faith apart from works, a faith apart from being acted out and working, it's, it's just dead. It's stagnant water. There's no life to it. The way in which we enact our faith is to be lived out the Apostle Paul reminds us, he's, he's not contrary to what James is saying here. He, he reminds us, that it's by grace that we've been saved, but 
also that we've been called to something in that grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. God does something miraculous. He saves us by his grace and we have no place to boast in that. But verse 10 says, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I love the language used here that we have these good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do, but that we should walk in them. Faith is always an active language that we're always moving forward towards Jesus. Even when Jesus grabbed hold of his disciples, he said, follow me. To be a disciple of Christ is to be on the move. It's to be living out our faith every day in the daily moments that we have, trusting in him, resting in him, and allowing that faith to shape us and to work out through us with an increasing love for God and an increasing love for those around us. This is the good that Paul is telling us to step into, not to earn our salvation, not to get our to-do list done, but to work alongside the one who has saved us and who has rescued us. For our lives are to live and bear fruit that comes from faithfully following him. But the question is, how do we do this? How do we do this well in the midst of today? And I I fully believe if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you have said, he's king of my life and I want to follow his royal decree, I want to live in his kingdom, I want to be a messenger of his kingdom wherever I go, then I believe that in our current cultural moment, we have an incredible opportunity to show something different than what everyone is experiencing around us. Where so many people are living in fear and confusion and frustration and anger and instability. We have the opportunity to live with hope and joy and peace and trust in the unwavering king that we have in Jesus. We have an opportunity to show a different way forward in the midst of the time that we are living in. But I will tell you, it's not easy. Because there's often a war within us that we want to give in to that side of us, that sinful side of us that just likes the anger that comes and we just want to shout out what we think. We've got to trust in what God is doing in and through us. Allow him to work in us. Allow his spirit to enable and empower and equip us to increase in our love for God and increase in our love for others. And so here's three questions that I think can be helpful to kind of frame this in your mind as you find yourself in different moments because we have plenty of opportunities to practice this, I feel like, right now. And so as you you think of these or as you find yourself in a moment where maybe you're feeling out of control or you're just feeling frustrated with everything that's going around you, I'd encourage you to ask yourself this question and also ask the Spirit to reveal to you your response in this. And the first question is this. What is my opportunity to trust God in this moment? What's my opportunity to trust God in this moment? I think too often we pay attention too much to the conversations happening around us and we forget that Jesus has not been knocked off his throne. 
He's still in control. He's not surprised by anything that's happening. We can fix our eyes to him, the anchor and perfecter of our faith, and hold tight to that. And so in these moments when we feel out of control or we feel like, are you even paying attention? Are you doing anything? We just open-handedly say, okay, Lord, what's my opportunity to trust you in this moment? What's one way I can trust you right here, right now in this moment and give myself back to you to realign myself back to you so that my faith begins to shape my actions? So what's my opportunity to trust God in the moment? The second thing is this, the second question. What's my opportunity to love God in this moment? What's my opportunity to love God in this moment? Now you might be asking, what's the difference between trusting and loving? Well, when you trust, you're, you're resting in him and his sovereignty and his goodness. When you're loving him, you're increasing in your worship of him. And you say, okay, in this moment, even though I'm frustrated with things around me, how can I worship you? with my life in this moment? How can the melody of how I'm living sing a song of praise to you? And that doesn't just occur when we sing together in church. It doesn't just occur when we gather here. It occurs when we walk out those doors. How do we continue to worship and love God in these moments? How do we continue to love God well in the midst of our own frustrations? And then the the third one is this, and I I think this is the one where we have ample opportunity uh, to to ask the Spirit to enable and encourage and equip us. What is my opportunity to love my neighbor in this moment? Not just the neighbors you choose, but everyone around you. What is my opportunity to love my neighbor in this moment? This is a very real thing that we are experiencing right now. I've had this conversation with numerous people that there's just kind of this low-level simmer that's happening in the back of everybody's brains right now. And you bump even the nicest of person, they're going to bark a little bit louder than they normally would right now. It's just the world we find ourselves in. And so you can walk into a supermarket and you cannot be wearing a mask and someone is going to tell you that that is the most offensive thing that they've ever seen. And then you can go sit in a dentist's office with your mask on and someone can walk in and tell you that is the most offensive thing that I have ever seen. There's not a way to win often in these conversations, but how we react and how we respond will tell people what kingdom we are living in. Now, I don't say that like it's easy. It's really hard. And so there's moments where we've got to kind of gird ourselves up when we know we're stepping into a place or we're going to be out and about. We know that there's a lot of different things coming at us where we just say, okay, Lord, what's my opportunity to love my neighbor in this moment? And even if they come at me hard in this moment or they're angry, how can I love well? Not just sit there and take it, not just like get run over, but how can I love with a gentleness and a firmness that honors you, Lord? How can I do that? Because my faith is I trust in you. I'm holding tight to you. And I believe even in the midst of all the crazy around me, you're still in control. And I'm holding tight to that. And so I'm going to live with that peace and that joy. And so how do I let that be what bubbles up out of me even when frustration is coming at me? See, the thing all of this takes is trust. It takes trust in Jesus, it takes our faith working itself out in love as it's increasing in our love for God and increasing in our love for others. But the first step of any of this is, is taking that step of I'm going to place my faith in you, Jesus. I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. I'm going to rest fully and completely in you. I'm not just going to know about you. I'm going to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to trust 
who you are and let that guide the way I go through life. You see, as as Blondin yelled for any kind of volunteer on that tightrope, no one came forward except one person, his manager. I think it was a shrewd move because it just made more money for them. But the manager came forward and he said, okay, I'll do it. But, but according to the story, he was visibly agitated, like he knew this is not something he really wanted to do, but he jumped onto the back of Blondin as they began to make their way across Niagara Falls. Now, he was not a tightrope walker. He, he did not do this before, and so as he got on, he realized everything in him wanted to try and create balance himself, but he knew that if he tried to do that himself, he was going to pull both of them down into the water. So the only thing he could do was simply surrender himself to the movements of Blondin, and he just held on. And he let him move, and however he moved, he just went with him, and they made it there, and they made it back. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. It means that we hold tight to him, and we surrender everything that we want, and we surrender it to him, and we trust him. And even when there's chaos swirling all around us, We trust that he's going to be able to navigate us through this. And so we begin to take his form. We allow him to shape us as we move through each of these situations. And we begin to walk as Jesus walked. This is a faith that is lived out in action. This is a faith that works. A working faith that is growing in its trust and its love of God. Which allows us then to increase in our love of others around us. Because we begin to move as he moved. This is what James is calling us to. This is faith placing ourselves fully in Christ and resting fully in him. And as a result, our faith should shape our actions and our actions should begin to take the very shape of Christ. Now, the beauty of all this is that we're never going to get this perfect we're going to try, but there's times where we'll be going along and we'll just be holding on to Jesus and then we'll, we'll see something coming and we'll, we'll shift and we're like, no, no, go this way. I think you should go this way and, and we'll fall. And he'll be there to pick us back up when we turn back to him and say, no, no, Lord, I, I trust you. Now move through me. So may we as a people have a faith in Christ that works itself out in an increasing love for God a deeper trust in him that shapes us so that we can have an increasing love for those around us. Amen? Amen. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are. That you, Jesus, truly are the, the one who has paved the path for us, made it all possible that we can have life as we were meant to in relationship with you. Lord, there is so much uh, opportunity for us in these days. And it's easy for us to make it about ourselves, our preferences, our wants, our needs. But God, would we just take hold of you and allow you to shape who we are as your people? 
Would you allow us to move forward where we feel weak and ill-equipped and to find strength in you to recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing? And Father, in this room, I pray that your spirit would move. Would you convict us and comfort us where we need it? Would you bring this to mind when we are going through our, our week, when we feel our anger bubbling up? Would you, would you pause it? Would you remind us to ask, okay, what's the opportunity for me to love in this moment? And Lord, we know in those moments, it'll only be by your strength and it'll only be to your glory that we're able to do that. And so would we quickly proclaim that growing in deeper love and trust of who you are in our lives. May we work out our faith by actively trusting and loving you and by graciously growing in love for those around us. Lord, we thank you that you pattern this and you show us this And even those who feel so far from you, you draw us in and you bring us to life. As you have been generous, would we be generous? We love you and we pray all these things. In Jesus' name.